We'll get started here. We'll get started here in uh, less than five minutes, okay? We'll just let people trickle in in a sec. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Oh, good. Welcome. Glad. Thanks for coming. What do you think we get? Get uh, no, no, no final. I will give some resources if you pe people want to do homework, but that's on them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you think I ought to get started? At I mean, I feel like it's the first time. I, I'm not. You know. I think I'm okay. I mean, I I, I want to cut it off at 7:30 and definitely respect time. It's a pretty good group. Yeah, I'm glad people showed up. Yeah, it's great. So I mean, I'd say in the next couple of minutes. Yeah, just get get it going. Yeah. It'll be like, I mean, we're at 6.33, so okay. 6.35, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Works for me. I just don't want these people next week to think they can come at like 6.40. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell them. Or you can just I'll, say, I'll just say this week yeah. it's the first time. Yeah, we're, we'll try to pick it up. At, just so that we can respect people's time, we're going to pick it up at 6.30 next time. Just let me know about lights, too. Is it too dark? Maybe too dark when you're not up there. Uh, Have you tested it? Like, it I can see. Fine. Lucky. Yeah, I can see. I think so. I think it's recording. Um, no idea. I don't know. I mean, there's going to be some. Well, yeah, right. I, that's, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, in that case, I hope it doesn't suck. Um, but it's it's there's there's going to be some discussion back and forth. So I, I don't know how that records. Uh, that seems like that's going to be a little bit of dead time on the air. But yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you're probably somewhat used to this, right? Just reiterate the question. Yeah, a little right. Bit and then mm -hmm. That's how it goes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the confidence. Hi. Hey, I'm Sam. Caleb. Caleb. Caleb and Jennifer. Okay. Good to meet you guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Great. Are you guys? Are you guys together? Married? Married. Okay. Wonderful. Have you guys been coming here for long? Okay, great. Oh, year and a half. Oh, okay, I'm so sorry. We haven't, we haven't, haven't met yet. Yeah, yeah. Are you guys me members, or are you just kind of been frequent attenders, or they kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Check it out. Good. Well, good. Welcome. Uh, we've been here for three. This is three years. Just three years for us. And we moved here from Chicago three years ago, and really, it was back when we were at the old building. And we lived around the corner then, so we basically just kind of moved in on a Saturday, and that Sunday morning we were like, well, it's, what's the closest church to us? And it happened to be this one, and so we were, yeah, that really worked out well. We just decided to stay. Yeah, that's right. That was not, yeah, that was not a long church hunt. And we just developed great relationships and been here ever since. Yeah. So Caleb and Jennifer, Jennifer that's right. Okay, just want to make sure. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get in. Hey, let's go ahead and get started. Um, thanks so much for coming. Um, I do believe they are recording this. Uh, there's going to be a little back and forth uh, with you guys. It's not going to be just straight lecture. I'd love to, to hear some questions or to, to hear you, you guys will actually be discussing with me a little bit. So I'm not sure how that will record, uh, but we're going we're gonna to try it nevertheless. Um, we, we got started a little bit late today just because it's the first time we're doing this, and so we'll let people trickle in. I think just to respect people's time uh, and make sure that we have enough time to fill in or to, to, fill, to make sure that the time is used well from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to try to start closer to 6.30 every time from here on out, okay? So it, this isn't going to be one of those things where we progressively move later and later until we're starting at like 7 to go to 7.30. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to start around 6.30. Um, and if you have to come in a little bit late, that's fine too. Don't, don't think I'm going to, you know, stare at you as you, as you, as you come in, just come in whatever, but we'll, we'll start. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to jump in and pray and we'll, uh, we'll start talking. God, thanks so much for, uh, your grace that is revealed to us, uh, in Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to die in our place, to give us life abundantly, uh, and ultimately life with you forever. Uh, Lord, we are not 
merely saved as uh, individuals. Certainly you have, you, have, you have pursued us as individuals and brought us to yourself, and yet we are also saved as a people. And we are part of a, a historic body of believers that we connect to uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that you would use these times, these equipped classes where we talk about uh, the history of Christian theology and the history of your church. Uh, use them to educate us, use them to inform us, use them to stimulate thought and questions and, and uh, shape our Bible reading. But mostly we want to learn about you and we want to learn about your people. Uh, we want to fall more in love with both of those things, you and your people. Uh, and so I pray that you would... Uh, you would use this time to enlighten us, God, and to, uh, to edify us and equip us, just as the classes say. Uh, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I'm so glad you guys could join us. Uh, I, will, I, will, I want to start uh, briefly by sharing with you guys some resources. Uh, I've got a little clicker here. Hopefully this... Uh-oh. Oh, please. Hold on a sec. Maybe i got to turn this on. There we go. Okay. So... Uh, you don't have to do homework in this class. Uh, I'm not going to be assigning that. You, you, can, you can just come and listen. Uh, and I'd love for you to participate. That would be wonderful as well. But if you're the kind of pe person who likes homework on this particular subject, uh, I want to give you some resources to look at. And, and they come in, in different levels of uh, investment uh, in the subject. So uh, if you want the stuff, the kind of church history books that you would get in seminary, uh, these are two volumes. This is Justo Gonzalez, and these are actually the, uh, what I have found to be the most commonly read uh, church history texts. Uh, I've, I've asked people from a bunch of different seminaries. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I've asked people who went to Southwestern and Southern seminaries, uh, and they all say that they, they read these texts in church history. And so these are The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez in two volumes. And it goes all the way from the Apostles up till, I believe they've since done a revised and expanded edition. Uh, and so it probably goes up to the present day. These are the earlier volumes. But uh, it's actually quite readable. Uh, he breaks them down into very manageable chunks. And so if you're, if you're interested in church history, would you like to read the kind of stuff that you would get in a seminary class, I would commend this to you. If you're not quite that invested and you don't need that many details that you would find in a two-volume uh, church history book, uh, Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Uh, he also breaks it down very, uh, in, in a very uh, basic, uh, straightforward format. He, he covers everything topically and everything from, from, again, time of the apostles all the way to the present day is included here. And I think it's up to, this is my second edition copy that I got in seminary. Uh, I think it's up to the fourth edition now. Not even sure Bruce Shelley is still alive, but uh, they still update his book. Uh, and so it's a very good text. And if, again, if you like this kind of thing, you can turn to that. If you would uh, also, uh, I will be occasionally referring to this book right here. This is uh, a sociologist slash historian named Rodney Stark, and it's called The Rise of Christianity, a very short book. And it was actually a, a uh, Pulitzer Prize nominated book for its time. And it basically traces uh, the social factors that led to the explosion of Christianity in the Roman world. It's a fascinating book. He covers a lot of church history, but he also tackles it as a, as a social scientist, and so it really is a, a, a quite an interesting read. For a little bit more investment, for those of you who are a little bit more ambitious, uh, I would commend to you the two at the bottom. That is the Apostolic Fathers. So these are two volumes of the Apostolic Fathers. And when I say Apostolic Fathers, what I mean is I, I mean uh, writers who are uh, writing letters and document epistles, uh, teaching that are just after the apostles. We're talking about the early 100s. So after the, the last apostles died, really the first half of the second century, uh, I'll refer to them several times. You've got guys like Ignatius, uh, Polycarp. Uh, uh, we've got a guy named Clement. Uh, we'll refer to a, a text uh, called the Didache, right? Like, so this is all included, and these are the Loeb Classical Library, and so these are translated. You've got Greek in one half and, and English in the other, so these are the academic texts, but they're fascinating texts. I mean, I will, I will refer to them kind of authoritatively, not, not in the sense like I, I would refer to as the Bible, but merely as an example of, of people who are living just after the apostles and what the early church thought about various subjects. And so if you're a little bit more ambitious and you want to learn about church history, this is what I would consider primary source text, not secondary source text like these guys, primary source text. Uh, and another example would be Eusebius of Caesarea. 
He wrote a book uh, in the, around the 300s after the time of Constantine called the Ecclesiastical Histories. Uh, and you can get them in a bunch of different versions. They're, they're very readable. But uh, Eusebius of Caesarea is, is a towering figure in our, in, in our understanding of Christian history. Uh, Justo Gonzalez actually says this about Eusebius. He says, uh, without Eusebius's Ecclesiastical Histories, our knowledge of Christian history would be cut in half. Right, like he, he tells us that much that we wouldn't know through other primary source texts. And so uh, he is a tremendously important writer. And so if you are interested in church history anywhere from the time of the apostles all the way up until around Constantine, Eusebius would be the guy you read. Okay, so why a class, before we get started with our, our topic for today, why a class on church history uh, or the history of, of Christian theology? Why would we include something like this? Uh, Eusta Gonzalez, in his, uh, the first volume of his church history, when he's introducing this subject, he actually has a, uh, a pretty cool little paragraph, and so I'll read that to you. He says, uh, The notion that we read the New Testament exactly as the early Christians did with any, without any weight of tradition coloring our interpretation is an illusion. It is also a dangerous illusion, for it tends to absolutize our interpretation confusing it with the word of God. So what he's, what he's, what he's saying is that we, we, we all come to the Bible, even though as, as much as we would like to think, to, uh, think as Christians that we, we approach the Bible and we take it at its meaning, we're reading what's there and we says, well, it, it obviously means this. All of us actually approach the Bible within a theological tradition, an interpretive tradition. We, we come at it with lenses uh, that shape how we're interpreting various passages. I'll give you an example in a second. Uh, why do you think he would say that it is a, a dangerous illusion? Right? What, 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 what could be dangerous about absolutizing our interpretation as if uh, it was the very word of God? Can you think of an example? Why would it be dangerous and not just make you a jerk? You thought, yeah. Yeah, sure. Right, we're right. If, yeah, if we, if we take a particular interpretation and say that this is how I'm going to, you know, and this is the only way it can be interpreted, uh, I, may, I may make costly decisions uh, because of that. Things that are decisions that are wrong decisions. Right? Okay. Yes. Right. And so once it controls, once an interpretation controls my uh, actions and somebody else's, and what if those interpretations clash? Then all of a sudden you've got two groups of professing Christians who feel very strongly that their interpretation of the Bible is the only interpretation that people could ever hold, and you absolutize it. You, you say that this is, this is obviously God's interpretation. It forgets, it, you forget that all interpretation of the Bible is theology. So every time, whenever I move from reading uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and turned to, well, I think this means immediately I'm doing theology. I'm trying to explain it. I'm trying to interpret it. And that is a human endeavor. As, as, as you know, whenever we move up from the text and start to try to uh, explain it, we need to uh, have the kind of humility uh, to realize that, hey, this is my our interpretation or our interpretation uh, and our community's interpretation. And it may be the right interpretation. I'm not saying like all interpretations are valid. Uh, but it, at least we know it is an interpretation. It's the process of doing theology. So Eusta Gonzalez goes on and he says, one way in which we avoid this danger is to know the past, how the co past colors our vision. A person wearing tinted glasses can avoid the conclusion that the entire world is tinted only by being conscious of the glasses themselves. Likewise, if we are to break free from an undue weight of tradition, we must begin by understanding what the tradition is and how we came to be where we are and how particular elements in our past color our view of the present. It is then that we are uh, free to choose which elements in the past and in the present we wish to uh, reject and which we will affirm. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here, how we could uh, take a certain interpretation of the Bible, absolutize it, and it have really dire consequences for the church and dire consequences for individual people. Uh, baptism is one of those examples. And I don't mean like whether or not baptism saves you. Uh, that is an, an orthodox Christian stance that we have always held from the time of the apostles is that baptism does not 
uh, save. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone, and baptism is the marker of that salvation. It is an expression, uh, a public declaration that we are, we are saved. So I'm not talking about like some kind of thing that equates baptism with salvation, but thinking about mode of baptism, how we are baptized. This is an example where coming to the scriptures may not yield consistent answers. There are passages of the scriptures that are ambiguous as to how baptism should happen. Should it, are, are people being dunked? Are people being sprinkled? Uh, linguistically, as much as I, I, have, I have heard people say, and they would like to think that the language solves that problem of like, they quote, uh, you know, the baptizo, the Greek verb, it always means to immerse. Well, that's actually not true. Uh, baptizo doesn't always mean to immerse. Even in the New Testament, it doesn't always mean to immerse. True that most oftentimes when baptizo is used in the New Testament, it means to immerse, but there are times in the New Testament where it, it quite clearly implies to pour or to wash. So for example, the disciples at one point are criticized by the Pharisees. The, these teachers of the law come to Jesus and say, your disciples are not washing. Your version of the Bible almost certainly says washing uh, ceremonially like they're supposed to. Right? Like, uh, it's, it's not, and they use the word baptizo. Right? It's, it, there is no indication that the d- disciples are being criticized for not fully dunking themselves in water. The implication is that they were supposed to wash their hands ceremonially. Another example. Um, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, the very beginning, uh, the writer Luke says that uh, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus could have in mind that we're supposed to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, perhaps. But later on in the book of Acts, several times whenever it talks about what the Holy Spirit does to people, it talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out or coming upon people. Right? So the metaphor that the author of Acts is using is baptism kind of equating it with being poured out upon or, or coming upon. All I'm saying, I'm not arguing either way. Uh, all, I'm, all I'm pointing out is the linguistic ambiguity in that term doesn't solve the problem. Uh, and so you've got disagreements about the mode of baptism. Some people saying sprinkling is fine. Some people saying, no, it only has to, it has to be dunking or you're not really getting baptized. Uh, and so this is actually an example where knowing something about church history and knowing the, the, the ways that Christians have dealt with that issue in the past can be enlightening. Because if we have all of these disagreements about what it means to baptize and the mode, proper mode of baptism and whether children should be baptized or only adults who have made professions of faith, uh, we may come to scripture with different interpretive traditions and come to different conclusions. But let's, let's uh, think about what church history has to say. What I just referred to in the Apostolic Fathers there's a document called the Didache. The Didache just means the teaching. So what happens in the Didache, and this is written around 110 AD, uh, the Didache talks about, it is basically a catechism. It is, it, is a, it is something that you are supposed to teach young converts, people who are about to be baptized. It's, it teaches them doctrine. And so what the Didache says, uh, again, written about 110, about 15 years after the, last, after the last apostle dies, is that whether you sprinkle or whether you dunk, you could do either. Uh, it actually, so it, it, what the Didache teaches is that if you had running water, like a river close to you, you should dunk people. Uh, but if that's not available, then you could, with absolute, you know, just totally, uh, it's okay to just sprinkle them three times for the hot Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if that's what was available to you. And it didn't, and didn't suggest that one was junior varsity Christian and the other one was like varsity Christian. It just seemed, and so what we see there is that for the early church, it seemed more a matter of like convenience, what was available to you, and neither one of those modes of baptism, whether you were immersed or whether you were sprinkled, really decided whether you were a Christian or not. Does that make sense? So you see how different interpretations, we could absolutize those things. And in fact, this is why it's dangerous. People have been killed over such things, right? Like uh, reformers, Protestant or Catholic uh, would have straight up killed you if you, if you were teaching that, you, could, you, that, that you, know, you didn't baptize infants or that you only had to baptize in a certain way. Uh, and so it, it meant church splits. It meant uh, schisms. Uh, it meant the deaths of some, all because of you know, really a forgetting of, of how Christians in the past have interpreted this thing called baptism. That's just an example. Uh, so uh, this is why church history is important. I hope that uh, at least, and I'll try to give you more examples to convince you of that. So before we jump in, uh, I, wanna, I wanna get some thoughts from you guys. Uh, and I wanna get quick reactions. So I don't want you to, uh, to, to give me a long speech, but I wanna hear from you. Uh, what is the first characteristic that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christ-like? When I say, that person is so Christ-like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? 
servant. servant. Okay, so you've got servant, selfless, selfless. love. Okay, love. Yeah, servant, selfless, love. Humble, okay, yeah. Sacrificial. Okay, sacrificial. Always pointing back to God, so God honoring, God exalting. Yes, okay, so uh, uh, an idea of a holiness, moral character, moral uprightness. So, so far, I think those are consistent. We've got servant, love, humble, sacrificial, uh, upright character. Uh, um, uh, Ashley, you said uh, pointing back to God, God exalting. Okay, those are the things that I... I actually assumed uh, everybody would say. So you've got categorically loving, merciful toward others, uh, holiness, identifying this idea of moral character, kind to the needy. Uh, you could consider that sacrificial or giving or charitable, uh, and also God-honoring and exalting. I noticed none of you, uh, none of you said uh, suffering, right? None of you said, when I think of Christ-likeness, I think of somebody who willingly, voluntarily, suffers physical danger. Uh, what I want to point out in this, uh, this equip class today is that for the first 250 years of the church, Christ-like also very much, it meant all those things too, but Christ-like very much included a willingness to suffer physically for Jesus. Christ-likeness wasn't just moral character. It wasn't just love for God. Uh, it wasn't just uh, being a loving person. It was uh, suffering. That's what they meant. How do we deal with verses? Otherwise, if we didn't, I mean, we can point to Scripture and actually get an example of this. So what do we do with these verses? I gave, before we started the class, I gave you guys, a, 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 four of you, different verses to look up. Could one of you read Romans 8, 17, please? Yes, I'm going to read that, but before I was Yes. Oh, wow. Maybe, just new. Yeah. Yes. Okay, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. All right, so uh, can somebody read Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 through 30? Okay, can somebody read Philippians 3, 10 through 11? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, now Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, please. Okay, so uh, you may, in your Bible reading, you may just kind of gloss over those verses as verses I don't really know where they fit into my life. Uh, I don't really know what to do with because none of us uh, that I'm aware of live in a context of imminent physical suffering uh, for being a Christian. Uh, and so sometimes we are tempted to take these verses and maybe analogize them or make them metaphorical or somehow make them about something else other than what they plainly seem to be saying. So, for example, uh, the first passage, Romans 8, 17, Paul appears to suggest that suffering with Christ validates our being co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer as he suffers, if indeed we suffer with him. Right, And so our suffering, Paul is saying in Rome, uh, our suffering validates our being co-heirs. Paul says in Philippians, he says that God has freely given. He says it has been granted to you. And that Greek word there is charizomai. It's, it's uh, the word charis. Or it's the, the root is charis for grace. It has been graced. It has been gifted to you freely on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for him. God has freely given it to us to suffer uh, like Paul is suffering. Uh, Romans or uh, Philippians, he, Philippians uh, 3 in 10 through 11, he says, Paul says that he longs to know Jesus's sufferings. He longs to share, he longs to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And he longs to know, and he suggests that becoming like Jesus in his death somehow enables him to attain to the resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a weird saying. In uh, uh, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is he suggesting that, that sharing in his sufferings allows us to attain to the resurrection? What does he mean by that? I mean, we're, again, we're tempted to kind of twist that, even though it, it says it pretty plainly. And so what, do we, what, what, what would the first Christians have read in that passage that we probably either gloss over or are tempted to say, well, it can't mean that. Uh, and lastly, Revelation. John, the writer of Revelation, suggests that gaining the victor's crown, the crown of life, uh, depends on the church being faithful to the end, even to the point of death. Be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. He who conquers, he who overcomes, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Uh, so what does that mean? How do we interpret those passages? Well, the first uh, century and the second century and third century Christians would have interpreted such passages and in fact did interpret those passages in light of the physical suffering that they were going to experience. And so uh, suffering for them allowed them to identify with Christ, to mark themselves as Christians, just like you and I think Christ-likeness is moral holiness, it is love, it is service and sacrifice. For them, it was also suffering. To the point where, let's put it this way. If you saw somebody who said, I am a Christian, and yet that person was unloving, you would question whether that person was a Christian. If you saw somebody who said, I am a Christian, and yet that person was not sacrificial in any way, wasn't willing to give up any of their time, talent, resources at all for anybody else besides themselves, you would question whether that person was a Christian. And these people, you know, early church, if they saw somebody who said, I am a Christian, and yet were uh, more than willing to deny Christ at the first opportunity, if it meant that they would experience physical torment, they would also say, you, my friend, are not a Christian because you are not identifying with Christ. You are not willing to suffer with him and to share in his sufferings. So let's get a little bit of the historical uh, uh, story here. What I want you to remember as we talk about Roman persecution, we talked about persecution under uh, Rome initially before Nero uh, a week ago in church. What we're going to need to keep in mind is these are the big themes going on when we're talking about persecution in the early church, that uh, persecution under Rome was first sporadic and not consistent. It was not happening all the time. It very rarely was systematic. Uh, it became systematic towards the end, right before Constantine comes into power, but that's around 300 A.D., up until then, it was really sporadic. It was also targeted toward leaders. And that was, in fact, one of the reasons that Christianity was still able to grow so fast. Rome got it wrong because they thought it, Christianity was like uh, any other religion where if you cut off the head or if you eliminate the leaders, then the religion would just disappear. If you get rid of the religious functionaries like the priests, uh, that religion would just dissipate because there's no one to offer the sacrifices or no one to distribute the materials or little artifacts that you need to worship your little gods. Uh, once you get rid of those for Christianity, I mean, you, could, you could kill all of our leaders, and as long as you don't kill the, the, kill, kill the grassroots folks, Christianity can still thrive. And in fact, the, uh, as Tertullian said, the, uh, the great apologist, he said, the blood of the martyrs uh, is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that was uh, when you see suffering leaders uh, who are more than willing to die for their faith, it energizes the church, it provokes uh, growth. It provokes passion and says, this is worth living for and it's worth dying for. And so Rome got it wrong because they were attacking leaders, but it was almost always directed towards uh, the bishops, the, the priests, uh, the leaders. And lastly, uh, it got progressively worse as time went on. It wasn't that bad at first, but it got worse. So prior to Nero, Christians under, were under Rome's radar. We're, not, we're, we're flying under Rome's radar as a, as a Jewish, weird Jewish sect, like we talked about a, a week ago. What happens, uh, Nero comes to power in about 54 AD. And uh, at first he's well liked, uh, but he becomes progressively kind of crazy. And I do mean crazy, like even the Roman writers thought he was losing his mind. 
and so as he, he, there is this great big fire that breaks out. Uh, there were 14 districts in Rome, in the city itself, and 10 of them were, went up in flames. Uh, and it was rumored that Nero was the one who ordered the fire. And he couldn't shake this rumor. And so what he does is he decides, I need to blame somebody. And you had Jews and Christians. Uh, Jews were this bigger group and Christians were this smaller kind of upstart sect that everybody thought was weird. And so he decides, well, I'll just blame the Christians and say that they did it. So what we have is we have a document from, we have these, uh, the histories written by a guy named Tacitus called the Annals. Uh, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a uh, a rundown of, of what Tacitus describes in terms of how Nero went about this and what were the consequences. So you don't have to read all of this if you don't want to. I'll read through it, but you're more than welcome to follow along. Tacitus says, yet no human effort could make the infamous rumor, that is, that, that, that Nero started the fire, disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians, who were infamous for their abominations. And last week we talked about what those abominations were, these misunderstandings about Christians being uh, atheists or incestuous or cannibals, uh, all of these false things that they, they were just rumored to be. They're, they're abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the proc, uh, procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which is the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome. And therefore, uh, first those who seized, who, uh, therefore, uh, what, what happened is first those were seized who admitted their faith, those, uh, the Christian faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for their hatred of the human race. So Tacitus actually, he, he doesn't think the Christians did it. I mean, he really thinks that Nero just was looking for someone to blame. Uh, and these Christians were weird. Uh, they're hated for being kind of this cultish, uh, isolated group. Uh, and so he rounds them up and he's able to, to get more and more. And he obviously doesn't get near the, the entire number of them, but he gets the leaders uh, and he starts executing. How does, how does this persecution look? What does he do? Well, it actually got kind of brutal. It says, and perishing, uh, they were additionally made into sports. This is what Nero did to them. They were killed by dogs having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used at, at, as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer uh, mixing with the plebes or driving about the race course. Basically, he would, he would, he would pretend himself like in a play. Uh, and perform and kind of run around in a chariot while he was lighting Christians on fire and hanging them around his garden. Even though they were uh, clearly guilty and merited being uh, made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to, and, and he's not talking about the burning, he's talking about being obstinate, being stubborn, being haters of humankind, that kind of thing. He said people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good but to satisfy the cruelty of one, of one man. So even people who were, who were witnessing this kind of thing, other Romans knew that they were being thrown under the bus, they were being blamed for this kind of thing. And so uh, uh, he thought, they thought Nero cruel. And, recent, and, and just after this, after the persecution of Christians break out, breaks out, uh, Nero is eventually, uh, 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 he commits suicide, right? Like, and so he's criticized so heavily. Again, there's uh, probably some mental illness going on. And so for a time, uh, Nero is supplanted by an emperor named Titus. Uh, and Titus is, doesn't really care about the Christians and he doesn't persecute them. And so again, this is kind of, again, it's sporadic. It's, it's not something that is happening all the time. After Titus comes another emperor called uh, or Domitian. Domitian uh, is ruling around the 80s and 90s. And he starts the persecution again. Now, this is likely where we get uh, the revelation of John. John is writing... Uh, his, uh, the book of Revelation, his, his apocalypse, right? Like the revelation in around 90 or 95 AD. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. Uh, and so he is, uh, Rome has been persecuting Christians under Domitian. Uh, and so even though you've gotten, so you can actually see a transition in the scriptures this way. You've got guys like Peter and Paul who aren't uh, especially critical of Rome. Like Paul is writing to the Romans, he doesn't seem to be going after and blasting and criticizing the Roman authorities. He says in Romans 13 that you're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. 
Uh, Peter says the same thing when he is also writing from Rome to other Roman citizens. He says that you're supposed to submit to the emperor as, as, as the, the, the ruler supreme, not as God, but as somebody who is, who is the authority. So they actually have a positive tone towards Rome. But what happens in Revelation? Well, a lot of, a lot of references to persecution is really what, what's happening under Roman rule, under Domitian. And this is where Rome takes on the metaphor like the whore of Babylon. Uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 17, he talks about the, the great prostitute, uh, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, uh, the, that is the witnesses of Jesus. And so John is likely referring to this persecution that is broken out. Now, as of yet, around 100, we're, we're, we're now about 100 A.D., so years after uh, the apostles and uh, the last apostles have died off by now. And there is not a, a consistent policy that Rome has adopted toward Christians. They haven't developed one. It really is just kind of going by emperor. And they haven't laid out like, hey, here's how we deal with Christians. They're about to. The way we get that is we start to develop this policy. And, and uh, what I'm going to read to you is a little bit of an exchange between uh, an emperor named Trajan, uh, who is ruling around uh, the early teens. This is uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, about 100 to 117 AD. So Trajan is the emperor and this guy named Pliny the Younger, who is a lower level governor. Now Pliny the Younger has found Christians and he's kind of annoyed by them. Uh, and he decides like, hey, I, I want to write to the emperor and say, am I handling this correctly? Uh, I, it's been, my, my practice has been this. What do you think about that? And so he describes... In the case of those uh, who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. So this is what he does to them. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. And those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Uh, and those who persisted, I ordered to be executed. So he keeps on asking. He gives them opportunities. Uh, Pliny the Younger has actually given them opportunities to deny Christ. Uh, to recant. He's, he's questioning him again and again. Are you sure? Are you sure you're a Christian? And those who are holding out get executed. Um, for I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, he didn't care, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. So get that. So, uh, so far, he doesn't really care what they believe. And he doesn't, he doesn't really, it doesn't really matter to them because again, like we were talking about a week ago, Rome is a diverse place with lots of different religious creeds, lots of people they had conquered believing lots of different things. Rome had no time or inclination to be able to persecute everybody who believed something different. But they did want to make sure that they persecuted those people who refused uh, to be obedient in, in, the, in the face of torment. In the, in they, they refused to acknowledge uh, the supremacy of the Roman gods or the supremacy of the emperor, and Christians were stubborn and needed to be suppressed. Again, not because of what they believed, but because they were uh, obstinate. And so there were others I, uh, who others uh, possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. And so if you had Roman citizenship, they, they followed procedural correctness and they gave you due process. So uh, uh, taking a step back for a moment, we, we get a little bit of a, a vision into how this lower level governor is dealing with Christians. Uh, he wants to persecute them because they're stubborn and they're different. Uh, it's not because they are uh, believing weird things or he hates them for that reason. It's because uh, it's, it's this group that doesn't seem to respect uh, the authority of Rome like I want them to. And I give them chances to recant, uh, but they don't. And so I have them executed. And if they're Roman citizens, I send them on up the chain so that they can be judged by other Romans. Now, Trajan actually responds to this. And he says, he affirms that this is how you should handle it. He goes on and says, uh, you observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. Uh, Part of, this, uh, part of the, the Pliny's letter that I didn't read to you is, is Pliny is actually concerned and he's writing to Trajan about like, how should I handle differences in age? How should I handle like the gender difference between men and women? Should I persecute them all the same? Uh, uh, do, I, do I go after the, the leaders or do I go after the older ones? Um, is, it, is it a matter like if they, used to, if they used to be Christians but no longer really follow that? Do I persecute them in the same way or do I treat them any differently? And so he's trying to sift through the cases and, and how should I treat these people? For it is not possible to lay down a general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. Get that. Christians were not to be sought out. So there is no, there is no uh, 
uh, indication that they were systematically hunted down. People weren't going from house to house and saying, are you a Christian? Uh, well, if you are a Christian, I'm going to make sure that, you know, you, 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 you know it's, it's not this kind of uh, uh, carefully thought through thing. They're not to be sought out. And if they are denounced, that is somebody publicly accuses them and found guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. So they have opportunities to recant and say, uh, that's not me, I'm not a Christian. But also says anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution. You got to love Rome, Rome's procedural correctness here. Like they even, even then, uh, around the first century are saying like, hey, there's, there's got to be support by evidence. We don't just take people anonymously trolling folks and saying like, oh, that guy's a Christian, uh, kill him. That's like the guy who's the competition across the street in business, right? Like a, they didn't allow that kind of thing. They had to, it had to be procedural, right? You had evidence. So we see that Christians, oh, sorry. Christians were not set out systematically, but if they were accused publicly, they had to repent. And if they didn't repent, they were tortured uh, and executed. So how did Christians respond to this? Hey, we're, we're at the early, th- or early 100s. What were Christians thinking about this at the time? We've got the, we've got the, the evidence from the scriptures, and so we can learn things, things from Paul and Peter and John. Uh, but now we can turn to the apostolic fathers, the guys who are writing around the first half uh, of the second century, in the early 100s. How are they thinking about this? Well, the best example of this is, is uh, a letter by a guy named Ignatius. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He's a bishop there, and he's writing to the Romans. Now, uh, Ignatius, if you ever get to read the Apostolic Fathers, he is, uh, he is writing a letter that is, uh, uh, he, is, he is going to be, he has been found out, he's been publicly accused, and the Romans are dragging him off to die in the arena. He's going he's gonna to go before the wild beasts. Uh, and he has gotten word, apparently, that the Romans are going to try to spring him out, uh, that it, Roman Christians are, are going to try to free him. And he's writing the letter to the Romans saying, don't free me. Uh, God has chosen this for me. Uh, you're going to uh, spoil this, uh, my reward that I'm looking forward to. I'll read it to you. He says, I am willing that all churches... Oh, sorry. Okay. I am willing... I'm writing all the churches and giving instruction to all that I am willingly dying for God unless you hinder me. I urge you, do not become an untimely kindness for me. Allow me to be bred for the wild beasts. Through them I am able to attain to God. I am the wheat of God and I am ground by the teeth of the wild beast that I may be found to be the pure bread of Christ. Rather coax the wild beasts that they may become a tomb for me and leave not part of my body behind that I may be a burden to, uh, to, uh, that I may burden no one once I have died. Then I will truly be a disciple of Jesus. He goes on. He says, "May I have the full pleasure of the wild beasts prepared for me. I pray that they will be found ready for me. Indeed, I will coax them to devour me quickly." And he says to the Romans, "Grant this to me. I know what benefits me. Now I am beginning to be a disciple." Fire and cross and packs of wild beasts, cuttings and being torn apart, the scattering of bones, the mangling of limbs, and the grinding of the whole body, the evil torments of the devil. Let them all come upon me, only that I may attain to Christ. Sounds a lot like Paul, right? Sounds like he is taking those verses about suffering with Christ, uh, sharing with Christ in his sufferings, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead, uh, being co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we are persecuted, uh, we endure persecution with Christ, Right? He, he says that now, now that I am, I am going to be martyred, now that I am suffering, I'm beginning to be a disciple. What does he mean? Does he really think that, that martyrdom saves him? No. Uh, but he, he so equates uh, suffering, persecution, and in case, his case, martyrdom with Christ-likeness. Uh, the same way we, we talk about sacrificial love, the same way we talk about uh, uh, being selfless. Uh, he's talking about identifying with Christ in that way. We have another letter called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp, now this letter is written a little bit uh, later in the first century, probably about uh, 160. Polycarp was very old when he died, uh, he was, and he was, he was martyred. Uh, he was killed by Rome. So we're talking about like 160 A.D. So there's this story. It's called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's in the Apostolic Fathers as well. And, and from it, we get a bit of a glimpse from his story about how he was martyred. 
we get a glimpse of, of, of how these Christians thought about persecution. And in this case, he's being persecuted under, and killed under Marcus Aurelius. Uh, so it's no, longer, uh, it's no longer Trajan, it's Marcus Aurelius. It says, now in the marvelous Polycarp, uh, when the mar- marvelous, oh, uh, do I have that? Nope, sorry, let me go back. Oh, sorry, this is backwards. Okay. Um, oh, nope, never mind. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I, I moved forward. There we go. Okay, so now uh, there was a person named Quintus uh, who was overcome with cowardice once he saw the wild beast. So what you had is you had a, a group of Christians who were, uh, who were actually running forward to be martyred. Uh, and they were being rash about it. They were almost like, like what I've just kind of dispelled, like almost in a masochistic way, like um, I'll be celebrated, my kids will be taken care of, uh, 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 I, I will be uh, saved through this or something, or I'll get glory. Uh, and so they were kind of glory hogs, and so they were running to be persecuted. So there's this guy, Quintus, overcome with cowardice once he saw the wild beast. This is a one who compelled himself and several others to turn themselves in. So he was trying to be martyred at first. But the insistent pleas of the proconsul convinced him to take the oath, that is, the oath of loyalty to the emperor, and offer sacrifices to pagan gods. And because of this, brothers, we do not praise those who hand themselves over, since this is not what the gospel teaches. So he, he's, he's pointing out in the martyrdom of Paul, the author is saying, we don't encourage people to go seek out martyrdom. Right? This isn't something like you just run towards. Uh, rather, Polycarp is a better example. What we see in Polycarp's life now, when the most ex the marvelous Polycarp first heard about the authorities looking for him, he was not disturbed, but wanted to remain in the city. But most of the others were persuading him to leave. And so he left for a small country house. And while they continued searching for him, he moved to a different country house. And he could have fled somewhere even from there, but he chose not to, saying, God's will be done. So what does Polycarp do? Polycarp doesn't run towards the persecution. We actually see an example of him, this celebrated bishop uh, who was martyred really kind of avoiding martyrdom. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be martyred. He's not looking to die, uh, but he's okay with it once, it, once if, if he's convinced that God wills it for his life, uh, he's going to accept it. And so how did the early Christians think about suffering from these two passages, from Ignatius' letter to the Romans and from the martyrdom of Polycarp? It shows that the Christians equated suffering and martyrdom with Christ's likeness and being a disciple. And they weren't supposed to pursue martyrdom and should avoid it. And they, they were allowed to avoid it if possible but they were submit to it if it was clearly God's will. If they had no other option but to say, hey, I'll serve the emperor, I'll, I'll sacrifice to the gods or death, then they were to choose death. Now, here's an interesting question. What happened to all those people who ended up denying Christ? Right? Like, there were lots of persecutions that went on, and we can't go through every persecution that, that, went, that took place from uh, 100 to, to, to 310, just before Constantine takes power. But what happened to those few Christians who, when given the opportunity uh, to say sacrifice to the, to the emperor or to pledge uh, allegiance to Caesar as God, uh, actually took the chance? And they said, yeah, uh, I'm not a Christian. Uh, and then, you know, afterwards repented. They felt shame. Uh, they felt guilty. They wanted to be let back into the church. What happened there? So they were given, we were, there, there actually arose a controversy around uh, a persecution of a guy named Decius or uh, an emperor named Decius. Decius was really the first example of an emperor who uh, systematically sought out Christians and tried very hard to get them to recant. He wasn't interested in killing Christians because previous emperors had seen that that doesn't work. And so what he thought was a better way forward was to try to get Christians to, to give each other up, to give up their scriptures, to deny Christ, to do it publicly so as to embarrass them and shame them. And he got a lot of them to be able to do it. And so there arose a, a controversy between a guy named Cyprian of Carthage and a guy named Novation. Uh, and this, this uh, actually uh, went on for several years uh, afterwards. But basically you have two camps, two, two, two different groups of people. You've got a guy named Novation who says, absolutely not. If they recant, if those people deny Christ, if they're given the opportunity of persecution and death or denying Christ and they choose denying Christ, if they hand over the, the scriptures, if they hand over their, their, their faith, uh, they don't get let back in the church. Uh, and before you say like, hey, that's really ungracious, that doesn't sound like it's very forgiving, uh, how else are we supposed to interpret passages like this? 
everyone, this is Jesus, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I've given a couple, this is Matthew 10, 32 through 33, but it actually is repeated several other places about denying Christ, he will deny us. Uh, as, as, as much as we'd, we'd like to say like, oh man, we should extend forgiveness to these people who have really compromised in times of trial, uh, they're really literally interpreting passages that seem to be suggesting that, that Jesus doesn't let people back in uh, who deny him, that if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. Uh, you've got the other side of that is Cyprian of Carthage, who is a bishop. Uh, he ends up winning out, uh, fortunately for many. Uh, and so Novation ends up being excommunicated. Uh, Cyprian wins out, and people who, are, people who denied Christ after they repent publicly were allowed back into the church. Um, but this really created a, uh, a, created a, a long-standing controversy uh, about the extent to which people like priests, uh, bishops, religious leaders, or, or Christian leaders who denied the faith publicly, whether or not they were able to be bishops again, whether they were able to be church leaders. Uh, and it was something that wasn't resolved just after these guys. And so people were very concerned with, okay, how do we deal with this problem? All right, lastly, how did this wrap up? And I know we're getting to the end, and so I, I want to make sure I respect your time. So persecution stops under Constantine. Um, right before Constantine, the worst persecution uh, breaks out. It's kind of ironic that uh, right around the 300s, a guy named Diocletian, uh, the, the Roman emperorship is, is kind of divided up at the, around this time. You've got Diocletian who has this idea that, you know what, one emperor is not really working. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide Rome up into four quadrants. It's going to be a tetrarchy. And so I will have two Augustuses, two like main emperors, and two Caesars, uh, like junior emperors. And it'll be kind of a, kind of a mentoring apprenticeship uh, thing going on. So uh, uh, Diocletian takes on a guy named Galerius, and Galerius hates Christians, and he starts this systematic persecution of Christians. And this is the worst one. It really is the worst one that Christians ever face. This is the one where they went house to house, uh, hunting Christians down, burning all of their churches, uh, rounding up their scriptures, because by this time we actually have uh, a, a compilation of scriptures that we would, we would say are the New Testament that we are following, uh, Paul's letters, the Gospels, those kinds of things. And so this persecution breaks out. Well, one of the other uh, Augustuses happens to be a guy named Constantine. Uh, and so Constantine is able to duke it out with the other junior emperors. Uh, by the time that Constantine comes on the picture, it's this guy named Maxentius. They fight it out, and Constantine is able to consolidate power. Now, the reason he becomes a Christian is because the, the, basically the, the night before he fights, this guy named Maxentius, who is one of the other junior emperors, he gets a dream. Some people say it was like a, he saw it in a puff of smoke. Other people say it was a dream. But he basically uh, saw the image of uh, a chi, which is like the X, and a rho, a Greek, uh, uh, what, what is, looks like a P. Uh, but it's the first two letters of Christ, right, like in the, in the Greek alphabet. And it says, uh, in this you shall conquer. And he says, so what he does is he, he puts that symbol on his uh, shields, and he goes out and he fights, and they win. And so he decides Christ is the, is the victorious God. He's the one that we're going to uh, worship from now on. And he ends persecution. Uh, he decides that uh, Christianity ought to be the respected religion. He himself, he calls himself a Christian, even though for the rest of his life, he worships uh, what's called the Invictus Soul, the Unconquered Son. Uh, so uh, it's highly debated whether or not Constantine is, in fact, a, a legit Christian. And yet he makes it very, like, livable for Christians at that time. Uh, Christianity later on becomes the official. Later in the, uh, later in the 400s, the, or this later in the 300s, the second half of the 300s, it becomes the official religion of Rome. So what are the consequences for this change in the church? What happens as a result of persecution no longer being something that we have to deal with? Well, what happens is what we just discovered uh, about half an hour ago is that when, I'm asked, when I ask you, what do you think of when I say Christ-likeness, we no longer equate Christ-likeness with suffering, with physical suffering. Uh, that's not one of the first things that come to mind. We think of love, we think of sacrifice, we think of mercy, we think of giving to the needy, but we don't think of physical persecution because we don't live in a context, and we haven't for years and years and years, 
where persecution is something that we're going to face. Uh, and so it's something that we no longer equate with Christ-likeness or even, even godliness. It's something that is maybe you should stand up to if you have a chance, but it's not something that is necessary. The other thing that happens, the flip side of that, is other characteristics. Uh, for example, self-denial, wealth, and power become markers of closeness to God. Uh, like this. Um, where do we get monasteries? Where do we get prosperity theology? Where do we get this idea of Christendom, that, that Christianity should rule uh, over a nation? Well, it, it comes as a result of Constantine eliminating all of persecution, right? Like, so what happens with monasteries? Well, monasteries weren't really a thing. Like, you didn't have a bunch of ascetic desert monks going into uh, isolation and seclusion and starving themselves and practicing, like, self-flagellation, like beating themselves as penitents or, or uh, hurting themselves, wounding themselves to prove their obedience, to prove their holiness, to prove their godliness. Why? Well, because it used to be that persecution, that martyrdom was the marker. But once that is removed off the table, how do you identify yourself as a Christian? You do it by extreme holiness. You do it by extreme self-denial. And so the whole reason we get monasteries and monks on the scene after Constantine is because Christians were really starting to look for a way that they prove their godliness, uh, to prove that they really, really care about Jesus. Uh, and so they, 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 they take on that kind of thing. But also, uh, once the church is really wedded to political power, once being a priest uh, no longer gets you killed, uh, it's actually a pretty good job. Right? Like you've, you've, you've no longer got people saying, uh, hey, if I'm, if I'm a priest, I'm the first one to get it. They're saying, how can I get to be a priest? How can I get to be a bishop? Because they wear the fine robes. They're the ones who get the, the, the cush positions. They have the nice house. Uh, they are the ones that have the, the ear of the emperor because they, they have sway religiously. Then you have really, you've got bishops and popes doing a whole lot of shady things to hold on to power. The office becomes quite corrupt uh, later on. I'm not saying that all popes or all bishops were corrupt because of this, but that's when it starts to, you no longer have this weeding out influence of persecution. Like the good thing about persecution is that it, 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 it gets rid of the half-hearted. You're, you're not signing up for something you don't uh, believe in uh, because it could get you killed, right? When it no longer can get you killed, uh, you just sign up for it because, hey, that's a pretty good job. Uh, and it also, uh, it also, the flip side of that is, because, is, is Christendom. And that is uh, emperors uh, and kings and leaders start to be able to use religion uh, as a way to, uh, as a way to uh, indicate their own authority, their own uh, righteous uh, uh, blessing that God has chosen me. God has chosen me as the ruler. You've got the divine right of kings because these things start to become wedded together. Christianity, in other words, being a Christian is no longer an indicator of persecution and suffering. It is something that is a sign that uh, God blesses you with authority and wealth uh, and spiritual um, uh, riches, not just spiritual riches, but uh, everything else. Last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that is uh, a little bit controversial. And I was looking this up today, and I'm, I'm a sociologist, and so I love data, uh, and I like asking these questions. I like taking things that we assume to be true and interrogating them with data and asking, you know, what, well, is, is this something that, that we really see fleshed out in practice? So Tertullian makes this claim, and uh, we'll wrap this up pretty quick. I, I want to respect your time, so thank you for staying with me. Uh, Tertullian makes this claim that the, the blood of the martyrs is uh, the seed of the church. And it would imply that the more persecution, uh, the more church growth you get. In other words, like where we see lots of persecution, Persecution only serves as like fertilizer for the church. We see it spring up. Well, is that something that we actually see borne out in practice? In the early church, we actually did see that. Uh, we saw it in Acts, where in, in Acts chapter 8, you know, Jesus, Jesus says earlier, he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How do they get there? Well, there's this persecution that breaks out in Acts chapter 8, and it ends up spreading the church all over the place, and they take the gospel everywhere. And so persecution in that sense backfired and allowed the church to spread in the book of Acts. And in Rome, uh, persecution also served that purpose uh, of uh, of invigorating Christians by seeing martyrs being willing to go to their death and sacrifice their lives for the things that they believed. And so it invigorated the church. And so Tertullian was right in that instance saying, hey, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
but it's not always the case. So it's a yes and a no. Here is, uh, here is uh, data from today, all right? So or recently, this is within the past couple of years. And somebody cleverly, this isn't my chart, but somebody uh, worked this together. You have two points, two points of data. Across the bottom, you have, uh, this is by Pew uh, Research Center, and they have a, a rating of 0 to 20. That is uh, restrictions on religion. So like higher scores over here means more persecution of religion, more control the nation has over it. And over here, this is church growth. Uh, and so what you see here, uh, basically, and you can read it over here, is, is the two things, persecution over here and church growth over here, it's not really strongly correlated. Uh, why is that the case? Now, you might see it in some cases. You might see, so for example, you've got an example over here, and, and I don't have the specific data points. Look at that dot right up there. You've got an instance, that dot over there and these dots over here, where persecution is really high and church growth is really high in that, in that nation. But you've got other people over here where persecution is really high and church growth is really low. They're, they're not growing very well. So what's the difference? Well, it seems to be, sociologically, uh, what you have in Rome is really a recipe for church growth and the kind of persecution that leads to church growth. You have what I described uh, a little while ago. It was sporadic. It wasn't happening all the time. It wasn't systematic. It was targeted towards leaders rather than the grassroots folks, like it wasn't going house to house getting the mom and pop folks, it was getting the bishops. And so uh, in that sense, martyrdom, persecution was able to invigorate the church and spur on church growth. Whereas you've got other oppressive regi regimes in the world that have proven to be pretty effective at suppressing Christianity, right? By removing opportunities to get Bibles, by removing, by, by uh, making sure that they interrogate people and they lock up anybody, not just the leaders of Christians, but the, anybody that they identify as Christians. In those contexts, oppression has been more effective at dampening the church, right? Like those, and, and in those circumstances, it, it can't just be a grassroots movement of the church to be able to overcome that. Uh, that seems to be less effective. What happens in those contexts, what seems to be more effective is uh, trying to overturn policy of like systematically wiping out, persecuting, killing individual Christians and trying to make uh, the policy of the nation more hospitable. Does that make sense? Right? And so the answer is a yes and no. In some ways, Tertullian was right. The blood of the martyrs has been uh, and was in his day and age the seed of the church. It spurred church growth. And in other cases, more authoritarian, uh, totalitarian regimes have proven to be more effective at, at, at getting rid of it. Um, I've gone over already. Do you guys have any questions? I'm sorry, like I, I will, in future, in future equip classes, I'm so glad you guys came. And so I don't want you to feel like this is just going to go into the wee hours every time. Uh, and so if you have any questions, I would love to hear them.